So I want to start off uh, by telling you, I don't know how many of you know a man named Frain Selak. You have the slide, can you pull up that first slide? This is Frain Selak, he's a Croatian music teacher, and he has been dubbed either the luckiest man in the world or the most unluckiest man in the world. Let me tell you why. 1962, he was riding a train when he was, the train was catapulted into a river. 17 people killed, but he somehow was able to swim the shore with simply a broken arm and hypothermia. The next year, 1963, he was riding in a plane when the door on, on the plane detached mid-air, something that we've seen recently with Alaska Airlines. And the plane crashed, though, killing 19 people. And yet, somehow, he was found alive and unconscious in a haystack. He, in other words, he fell out of the plane and somehow landed in the haystack by the grace and mercy of God somehow. And he didn't know what happened. He woke up in a hospital. Now, after that, a few years later, three years later, uh, no, excuse me. Yeah, three years later, 1966, he was riding in a bus when it skidded off the road, overturned also, again, into another river, drowning four of the passengers. Yet somehow he swam the shore with just cuts and bruises. Three years, no, four years after that, 1970, he's driving down the highway. His car caught fire, and he escaped right before the fuel tank exploded. Three years after that, 1973, he was driving a new car when the fuel pump began to malfunction, spewing hot oil, dousing his engine with hot oil, causing fire to shoot through the air vents, singeing his hair completely off, and yet miraculously, he was otherwise unharmed. Then he had a relatively quiet, almost 20-year period. In 1995, he got hit by a bus as he's walking across the street but survived with minor injuries. 1996, he, had to, he was driving around a mountain pass when he had to swerve to avoid an on, uh, a head-on collision with a uh, truck around this mountain curve. And the only way he could avoid the truck was by crashing through the guardrail, crashing into the guardrail, which his car did, and he went through it on the mountain cliff. Fortunately or unfortunately, children who are learning to drive, please don't take this as an example, he was not wearing his seatbelt. And so he was ejected from the car, landed on a tree as his car plummeted 300 feet to its explosion. Now, I don't know about you, but if I were Frain Selak, I might start wondering, why do these things keep happening to me? Why do bad things keep happening to me again and again and again? And I posit to you that there are times that you and I feel just like that. Why does one bad thing keep happening after the other? That there are times that something bad happens, and as I'm slowly trying to recover, finally, then the next cataclysm or crisis happens in my life. Or we, when we look at the world around us, why is it, does, does it seem like those who are selfish and powerful seem to be able to triumph and win again and again in society? Why does our society's immorality and evils worsen. And there are times you may feel frustrated with God and wonder, Lord, are you unaware? Are you uncaring? Or are you unable to help me? If you have ever felt like that, then let's look to the Word of God for some help this morning. If you have a Bible, turn in it to Daniel chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we're going to show up on the big screen. There are Bibles in the seat right under you. And if you don't own your own Bible, 
please take that one home. That is a gift from our church to you. We specifically buy them so that people can have them. But we are in this series called Between Two Worlds. How do you live for Christ while living in the culture of Babylon? Just like Daniel back then and just like us today. And he was in this season of God's people when they had turned away from God towards idolatry and immorality. And so God warned them again and again, if that's what you want, then that's what you're going to get. And so as they continued to turn towards immorality and idolatry, he allowed them to be conquered by the Babylonian Empire, who gave them exactly what they wanted, taking their sons, including Daniel, into the service of a pagan king and a pagan culture. Seventy years later, in chapter 5, was their liberation of a sort. As the Persian Empire comes and conquers Babylon, just as prophesied by the Lord in the Bible, including naming the very person who would liberate them, King Cyrus, predicted 150 years before his arrival on the scene in Isaiah chapter 44 and 45. But part of the message of the book of Daniel was before you get your hopes up, before you think it's smooth sailing from now on, he warns them in chapter 6, this new empire's in charge, but the second verse is same as the first. It's a different kingdom, but the same spirit of Babylon. And so today what's happening is there's this weird shift in the book of Daniel. We've been kind of covering all these historical events that are happening, and now we're going to turn into these visions and dreams that he experiences. And we turn back the clock, back to the reign of the last king of Babylon, Belshazzar, not to rehash the past, but to reveal the future. As Daniel is transformed, his role is transformed from being the dream interpreter to becoming the dream receiver from God. And the reason God does this is to prepare those who follow God for the dangers ahead and how do we continue to live for Christ even in the shadow of the spirit of Babylon. Let's read Daniel chapter 7, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he uh, wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and be- uh, in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked and behold, another, like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions. And behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the other beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up up among them another horn, a little one, before which... Three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots, and behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. 
Let's stop right there for a moment. So what in the world is happening here? This is a very crazy dream, so let's walk you through it. In verses 1 and 2, we see that with the rise of King Belshazzar, the final king of Babylon, begins this countdown to Babylon's impending fall. That the Lord has begun to show to Daniel what's going to happen beyond the Babylonian empire through this dream and this vision. And so in verses 2 to 3, there's this chaos that God is stirring up from heaven, stirring up the kingdoms and stirring up histories like a churning sea all coming from the winds of heaven. So God himself is orchestrating this political unrest that's going to happen between nations and kingdoms and empires. And from this chaos, four beasts arise, one at a time, representing the four great powers of history, historical empires that will define and dominate the world and its culture that God's people will live in. And so verse 4, we see this first one. And this one's very easy for us to figure out because throughout history and throughout the Bible, the Babylonian empire is characterized as a lion or as an eagle. And so this, this first creature, this mighty lion with eagle's wings, is the great Babylonian empire that Daniel is, was living in at the time. And then you see its wings get torn off. And we saw this happen in history as God humbled King Nebuchadnezzar. His tumbled from the mighty heights back down to earth with temporary insanity we saw in chapter 4 given to him by God. But then God gave him a human mind, as it describes in this passage, that he came to his senses as we saw him humble himself and worship God. Verse 5, next comes this bear. And we know that this is the Medo-Persian Empire. We've already met them in chapters 5 and 6. They're the ones who conquered Babylon. And this bear is raised up. It's lopsided on one side because Medo-Persia is the merging of two powers. And Persia, the upper, higher side, is the greater one. Because they came, we know historically, they defeated the Median Empire and then swallowed up, joining their forces together. The Persia was always the greater, the one that took over. That's why it's often referred to simply as the Persian Empire. And even though they will be the empire under which the Jewish people are allowed to return from exile, they're not the friend of God's people. Prophetically and historically, what we, we see is that their mouth is full of flesh of their conquered enemies and that they're continuing to devour more and more and more. When an animal is devouring your flesh, that is not your friend. Third one, verse 6, is this winged leopard. That represents its incredible speed of the Greek empire under Alexander the Great, who was able to conquer Persia and conquer the entire world by the time that Alexander was 30 years old. Now, the reason that it has four wings that become four heads is because after Alexander died, and keep in mind, this is hundreds of years before, uh, uh, or after, excuse me, that Daniel passed away, that after Alexander died with no heir, his kingdom was divided into four different pieces under four different generals. So those four wings become four heads. And so you see that these prophetic utterances that, or visions that were given to Daniel were so remarkably accurate and specific in many ways. Now in verse 7, it culminates with this fourth one, that it's so exceedingly strong and terrifying, Daniel doesn't even have a descriptor for what kind of animal it looks like. And we know that this is the Roman Empire that came and conquered Greece, and its iron teeth represents its incredible strength to tear apart people and nations and to trample and shatter what's left under its foot. And it's different from the other ones because it is a horned animal. Now, 
Biblically, I want you to understand this. Whenever something's pictured with horns, it represents in the Bible something that has great power, something that has an ability to hurt things. If you own a pet in your home, you most likely have a dog or a cat, a hamster or a fish. Any animals in your home with horns? Probably not because they're dangerous, right? Think about this. What kind of animals do have horns? Bulls, rams, rhinos, right? And so what's happening here, what would happen if your animal without horns runs up against an animal with horns? What's going to happen? The one with horns wins almost every time, right? And so the picture here is a horned empire is a conquering empire, and there is no one that can stand in its way. And so for Daniel and the people of his time, this is a warning, right? They thought that finally we're getting rid of Babylon. God is dealing with our captivity and exile after these 70 years, and God did promise and prophesy the fall of Babylon, and they see that happening in real time in Daniel's uh, lifetime. But the warning here is that's not the end of trouble for God's people, that there's going to continue to be empire after empire after empire, and that they're like wild animals that devour and trample you. They're not here to bless you and deliver you, but to oppress you and devour you. And so the point here is that God is warning his people to expect that the evil powers of the world will continue to rise and terrorize God's people. Now, for you and I, we might feel like, well, the fourth kingdom, the Roman Empire, we know historically fell in 476 AD. So how does this relate to us at all? Now, so far, I want you to catch this. For those of you who've been with us during this series, you know that this parallels this vision that God gave to King Nebuchadnezzar, excuse me, in chapter 2, of a great statue made of four different metals representing the four different kingdoms, and with ten toes uh, from the last kingdom that was mixed between clay and iron. But it all represents the gold of Babylon, the silver of the Medo-Persian Empire, the bronze of the Greek Empire, and the iron, that strong iron of the Roman Empire. And, but what's happening here in this passage is there's suddenly some new details that have not yet happened. This is how it relates to us. Verse 7 and 8, it talks about how in the future that this, this horned beast has 10 horns that represent kings and nations, 10 kings and, and uh, kingdoms to come. We know this because the Apostle John tells us about it in Revelation chapter 17, verse 12, that these have not yet arrived, but they continue in the spirit of Rome. And then, of course, here's the most important detail of all in this story, that there's this little horn, this new horn, this new king that's going to erupt and uproot three of the other ten kings and kingdoms, subduing them and taking their power for his own. And he has eyes like a man. And it's interesting that it says like a man because behind those eyes, we know in Revelation, is the spirit of Satan, Satan himself influencing and guiding and empowering this man. And so this little horn that erupts has eyes like a man, and its, and its mouth speaks great things. Now, I want you to understand this. When you read that in your translation of the Bible, great things doesn't mean good things, but about boasting, about his own greatness, his own power, how he's his own God. And so this is the first prophecy in the Bible about an anti-king, a king that is against God, an anti-king that we call an anti-Christ. Now, how does this relate to us? You see, because back then, and for us now today, this is a warning to the people of God. Even when there's a change 
in regime, regimes or empires or presidencies. It's the second verse is the same as the first, that the goal of worldly powers that are not directed by God is not to bless and deliver you, but to oppress and devour you. Now, how does God respond? Look at verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed in the Ancient of Days, took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. (coughs) Excuse me. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Verse 9 and 10. We meet the ancient of days. That is a title towards God, about his authority and his sovereignty as the God who existed from before time began, from everlasting to everlasting. He is pure and good like the whitest of snow. His power and judgment are like the mightiness and power of fire. And he's surrounded by a multitude of angels serving him and then a multitude of multitudes of people worshiping him. And there comes a day when he opens the books before him because judgment has come. So these are the books of life that contain the deeds of everyone throughout all time in history. And he is ready to judge. And in verse 11 and 12, we see this little horn and he's still continuing to bleat about his own greatness because he thinks that God hasn't done anything about it yet and that he never will. But it's interesting because this verse doesn't go into details. We get more of that in Revelation, but it's not even worth talking about to God. It's just that it says here that abruptly the horn's dominion and his life come to an end. It's destroyed. And in place of this false king, this anti-king, the Ancient of Days appoints a worthy king, a true king, the king of kings in verse 13 and 14, who appears like a son of man. And I want you to hear that title because many of you know who are Bible scholars that that's Jesus' favorite title for himself. He constantly refers to himself as the Son of Man. In fact, it's referred to 84 times in the Gospels. And Jesus doesn't say that simply to emphasize his humanity, that, oh, I'm a Son of Man. I'm, a, I'm, I'm flesh just like you. Actually, what we see in Matthew chapter 26, <clears throat> verses 63 to 65, these religious leaders confront him in a court of law. Are you the Son of God? And what he responds is, he quotes this passage that the Son of Man is coming with the clouds of heaven. And as soon as he declares that about himself, they tear their robes, they accuse him of blasphemy. Why? Because it's not about talking about being human, 
Because it is a claim of deity to say that you are the son of man. It is claiming that you are equal to God, that this son of man who can approach, even though no human can approach the presence of God without being completely destroyed by his holiness, that this son of man can stand right before the God of heaven, that he comes from heaven with the clouds. You know anybody who rides on the clouds? Only those who are Dragon Ball Z fans other than Goku. He's not a real person, Pedro. (laughs) This son of man is worthy of the authority and glory from God. He exists eternally because the kingdom he rules is an everlasting kingdom. So this is not just a human king that lasts for a lifetime and has a rule and dominion of 70, 80 years plus. He is an everlasting, eternal king because he is God. And he rules over an everlasting kingdom, over all people, all nations, all languages. We see that in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. And so the big idea of this whole passage this morning is not to scare you or to, to talk about something that sounds like science fiction or fantasy, but that we see that God is trying to send us a message to trust God to deal with temporary evil and to deliver us with an eternally good king. That yes, there is evil coming, but it's, but it's temporary. And what lasts is this king, good king and his good kingdom. And this is good news and great comfort for any of us and all of us who suffer at the hands of evil or injustice or oppression in this world or in this lifetime. And I know we living in America are pretty coddled, but you need to know that when, if and when that comes, when you're persecuted and unjustly treated, that there's no one who's getting away with anything, that they are ultimately in the hands of a just judge, that we see in this prophecy and throughout all these things that happen in this vision, that the days of the kings of men and the kingdoms of men, they rise and they fall, but there's a day coming that the kingdom of God will rise and the sun never sets on it. So no matter what you're going through today, perhaps there's wave after wave of challenges or heartaches in your life. That is not the end of the story for you. The end of the story, God says, is that God himself will ring in that final curtain on all of history, that he will right every wrong, that all people, including the wicked and the powerful, like this king, will be judged, including you and I. But the good news is that for all who place their faith in Jesus, that Jesus Christ is the judge, and the one who judges us most finally is the one who loves us most fully. So if you place your faith in him, forgiven, salvation... So question, do you think this is good news and comforting news to Daniel as he's receiving these visions? No, we're going to see that he's still anxious about this future. Verse 15, as for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the thing. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head. And the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, and that seemed greater than its companions. And as I looked, this horn made war with the saints 
and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High and the time came when, came when the saints possessed the kingdom. So in verse 15 and 16, Daniel is alarmed about these beasts that devour God's people. And so he approaches this angel, one of the angels that was worshiping God in the vision, and he asks, what in the world does all this mean? And so in verse 17, he explains what we already know, that these four beasts represent four fearsome kings and kingdoms of the earth. But the key here is in verse 18. He reassures them, reassures Daniel and us, that the saints of the Most High God, those who are holy and set apart for God by faith, not by our righteousness, but by Jesus' righteousness, shall receive his kingdom forever and ever. And in verse 19 through 20, Daniel is still terrified. He's thinking about this fourth beast who rips apart people and nations, who grinds what's left into the dust, and particularly of that little horn. Because in verse 21, it says that he will make war against God's people and prevail. That means he's not just a political figure. He's a persecutor of faith. That he doesn't just cause suffering. He will bring death. That will come from many followers of Jesus, as we see later in Revelation chapter 13, verse 7. And we do see that happen, start to happen in history. With the fourth beast that arose, the Roman Empire, what happened? A great violent outburst of persecution started happening against Christians. But that happened way back then. That kind of thing doesn't happen now. 2023 report on global persecution of Christians by uh, Open Doors USA they did a study, and this is just of reported things that happen. They report that one in every seven Christians in the world live in a place where it's illegal or forbidden or punishable to follow Jesus by faith. And as far as just reported incidences, 312 million Christians live in, experience extreme persecution for following Jesus. Some statistics for you from last year, as far as we know of, 2,110 churches were attacked. 4,542 people, Christians, were detained, arrested, or imprisoned. 5,621 Christians were killed. Now, here's the kicker. Just in the top 50 most persecuting nations in the world. So not in every nation. We're just talking about the top 50 nations where Christians are persecuted. Now, this kind of thing happens. And I could give you some more facts, but I'll just jump to the number one uh, persecutor of Christians in the world last year, uh, a repeat champion, North Korea took the rank of number one again. Because the way they treat Christians is as a hostile element that society must eradicate. And so they just recently uh, published a law that gave local authorities in, an incentive to expose or arrest Christians in their community. And this is what happens. If you are discovered to be a follower of Jesus, not only would you be deported to a labor camp or perhaps killed on the spot, your family to the fourth generation would share your fate. Your grandparents, parents, children, grandchildren would all have to experience what you experience. And so in that nation of North Korea, daring to meet other Christians is a very risky proposition. It only happens in utmost secrecy. And yet, 
the underground church in North Korea is 300,000 people strong who dare to defy an unjust regime because following Jesus is worth more than their safety or their lives. Yeah, but that kind of thing doesn't happen to me. It won't happen here. And we're not trying to be conspiracy theorists, but the Bible tells us there will come a day. Persecution will come for every follower of Jesus. This little horn will arise, trick fool the world into thinking that he's a peacekeeper and actually make war against Christians and prevail. But the good news is in verse 22, the Ancient of Days ushers in this judgment and God's people will ultimately receive comfort and joy of this promised kingdom to come, ruled by a good king who is loving and just and sacrificial and good. And Revelation chapter 21 verse 4 tells us that when his kingdom comes, there'll be no more sin, no more death, no more mourning, no more weeping. And so what is the message of this passage? That the worst is yet to come, but it's temporary. And the best is still to come, and it's eternal. And that is the perspective we need that will give you the strength in Christ to persevere in pain or in persecution, and especially in your faith by keeping the end in your sights. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24 through 27, Jesus tells people, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross of suffering, and follow me, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. For what good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? And here it goes, for the Son of Man counts in the Father's glory with his angels and rewards each according to what they have done. In other words, by your faith and by your faithfulness in loving and trusting and following Jesus. You see, when we think about persecution and difficulties in this life and challenges, a lot of times we just want to avoid suffering or, or possibly making waves as a, as a follower of Jesus. And I want to tell you that your life cannot be about escaping persecution or avoiding causing any controversy. Jesus didn't die to make your life in the Bay Area a pain-free paradise. He died so that you would stop trying to make this life your heaven on earth because we have something outrageously better and it lasts forever. And so if you live for comfort or the entertainment or for your escapes or for yourself instead of God, and this life is going to be your heaven, this is as good as it gets. But even if you suffer now, if you trust Jesus and belong to Jesus, this life is as bad as it gets. This is your hell, and it only gets better from here. So I want to tell you, the Bible says persecution will come, and it will be real. But there are worse things than death, and there are better things than a life apart from Jesus, and that victory over evil isn't fought with swords or guns or political power, but by faith in Christ and faithfulness to Christ with our lips and with our lives. So even if there is suffering, suffering is not defeat, and death is not the end if you trust Jesus for your forgiveness of sin and salvation for eternity. Now, Kind of like I hinted at, if you're like me, like Daniel maybe, you would be anxious about the future. 
And you would be tempted to simply live for yourself or tempted to live in such a way that you could avoid persecution. If I just keep my head down, if I just keep my mouth shut, if I don't offend anyone, if I get along with everyone, will I be able to stay out of trouble? Verse 23. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth, and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns out of the kingdoms, ten kings shall arise, another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words, here's his great words, against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court, this is the court of God, shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey them. And here is the end of the matter. Now, as for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Verse 23, this fourth kingdom is different from the rest of the kingdoms. Can I somehow live in such a way to avoid persecution? This fourth kingdom, there is nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. There is nowhere to avoid persecution because it devours and destroys the entire earth and all the people in it. In verse 24, not only is this fourth kingdom different, this last king is different from the rest. He's the most dangerous of all. And it gives us a few more details to recognize when he's coming, when there's 10 kings and kingdoms in the spirit of the Roman rule, when this king who comes up that seems like one of, just like all the other kings, but takes out three of them and dominates all of them. Verse 25, you'll also recognize him by the great things he says. Remember what we talked about? And we see it here, that he's boasting about his own greatness over God and against God. And he'll persecute the followers of God. And in his authority and arrogance, he's going to actually try to change things, like changing the calendar, no more Christmas for you, sir, and changing the laws specifically to target those who follow Jesus, just like Daniel's enemies did in the last chapter, chapter 6. And God's going to allow this. He's going to allow a time of great tribulation. But the good news is that it's only temporary. Because we see here in verse 25 that he says that he'll be allowed to dominate for a time, two times, and half a time. This is the Bible's way of saying a year, two years, and half a year. In other words, three and a half years. And we know that that's not just Josh pulling some weird conspiracy interpretation because Revelation chapter 13 verse 5 talks about that this great tribulation will last for 42 months, three and a half years in other words. It's only temporary. And he gives specific details to recognize this future threat, not to make us afraid, but to make us aware. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, don't be surprised by the fiery persecution that you'll experience for loving and living for Jesus as if this is something strange and unexpected happening to you. As Daniel experiences apprehension about his future, about the, the future, God wants him and wants us to be aware of the coming persecution, 
but also to be confident in the coming kingdom of God. See, we are not supposed to be afraid, but aware. And we're supposed to be confident because we know what the future holds and what the end is. You see, in verse 26 through 28, our confidence is that we're waiting for God to come and ultimately judge this wicked king. We're waiting for God to come and establish his everlasting kingdom through an everlasting king for our hearts, for our home, forever. So what we see here is, I want you to catch this. God isn't just giving this prophecy to Daniel for himself, right? He's not going to live long enough to see most of the outcome of what's going to happen. God is giving him this vision for followers of God to come, who will get to see history unfold, that about 400 years after Daniel is recorded, we'll see the fourth kingdom, this Roman conquering Greece. And the point here is that if this sovereign God faithfully fulfills four-fifths of this prophecy, four empires that come that we get to see throughout history, accurately, specifically in history, then that gives us great confidence in the final outcome, the final part of the prophecy, the final victory, so that you and I, we can confidently trust and patiently wait on Jesus and his coming kingdom. So let me end with this. When I think about the future, we have some confidence because we've seen so much of this prophecy already fulfilled. And our goal is, when I think about persecution, is simply to wait on Jesus, to trust for his coming deliverance. <coughs> I want you to consider how can you grow in waiting and confidence in the coming of God's kingdom. I think about Justin Early is this Christian uh, who does some social media stuff. He wrote the book, some of you have read it, The Habits of a Household, a Christian author. And I want you to try this experiment with me this month. You know, we've been doing these monthly kingdom challenges. I want you to try an experiment with me this month called No Phones While Waiting. <laughs> Before you start throwing things on stage, why would I do that, Pastor Josh? Because just like we see in this passage, life in this world is not right. There's sin, suffering, and brokenness here. And we know that persecution will come. And we are waiting for Jesus to come again, to make all things new, for his kingdom to come. This is a primary Christian belief. And yet it's so hard to practice because we never wait. When we have any discomfort in our lives, much less persecution, we're always distracting ourselves. I'm bored, so I'll distract myself with my phone. Oh, I'm frustrated, I'm going to distract myself with my phone. We were always distracting ourselves with our phones while we wait. And so this little habit is a way to develop confidence and perseverance in waiting for Jesus and his return and his victory. So for me, what this looks like is, you know, there's that few minutes that I'm waiting for the next meeting to start. Or I'm waiting for my lunch buddy to arrive on time. Or I'm waiting to pick up my kids. Or I'm waiting at the checkout line because the line is a little bit too long. Whatever that is for you, while you wait, I want to challenge you just for this month, not saying that never look at your phone, but while you're waiting for something, avoid turning to your phone in that moment, just for this month. Instead, lean into the tension that is waiting. One way you might do that is simply sing a short prayer. For you, O Lord, my soul in stillness waits. Why would I do that, Pastor Josh? Because when persecution comes, 
Instead of developing the habit of turning to escapes and distractions, you'll develop perseverance in your faith, confidence in Christ by exercising your spiritual muscles of patiently waiting on Jesus and for his kingdom to come. Remember Frank Selak, man that we're just talking about? His life, it's kind of like a horror movie. For, it's kind of like Final Destination. For those of you who don't, don't know, it doesn't matter. But it's like he avoided death once, and now, now these horrible, painful ends keep coming for him. He's been through so much, and you expect his story to end in tragedy, right? That sooner or later, he's got to meet his doom. There's only so many ways that you can avoid <laughs> bus, train, plane, whatever, death. Instead, Two days after his 73rd birthday, he won the Croatian lotto jackpot. <laughs> he became a millionaire overnight at 73. And the good news for him was he didn't meet a horrific doom. He died victoriously of natural causes at age 87. <laughs> no planes, no trains, <laughs> no, no cars destroyed him. He got to live out his natural life. Now, Frank's life was dogged by uncertainty and suffering. And the reality is, yours will be too. If you genuinely love Jesus, worship Jesus, follow Jesus, there will be times that suffering comes because of Jesus. But also like Frayne, the end of your story is not a tragedy, it's victory in Christ. And so, before we get there, are you aware that there's both danger and deliverance ahead of you? Because the truth is, the worst is yet to come, but it's only for a season. And the best is still to come, and it's forever. And because Jesus is alive as our Savior and will return as our King, we worship Him, we wait upon Him. He is wonderful and glorious and good, and He's coming again to establish His kingdom, to fill us with joy and celebration, and in time without sin, suffering, or death is no more. And so may you be ready for what lies ahead. May you meet it, even suffering or persecution, with the joyful certainty of Jesus and his ultimate victory in our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the power of your word that reminds us that you are a God in heaven who knows all of time and history, that none of it is a surprise to you. None of it is beyond your control. Even when terrible things happen, even when it is unjust to your people, that you are still God. And so today we ask that you would help us to be men and women who don't simply say that we can love and follow Jesus when our lives are smooth and easy, but to know that suffering will come, it does come, and even then you are still God. And we ask humbly, as we wait for your son's quick return, that you would teach us to patiently wait upon the God who brings justice, the God who brings restoration, the God who will make all things new. And whatever pain or suffering we bring today, may we remember and experience the living God, the God of glory, the God of victory. We love you and trust you in the name of Jesus.